This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. Thank you very much, Alessandro, for volunteering to talk about inflation. I think it's, it's a nice timing for this. I mean, we have this famous quote about uh, Chancellor being on the brink of the second bailout in the Genesis block. And now yesterday, indeed, some miner, not in the first block after the halving, but in the last block before the halving, put a, a matching quote of the current New York Times headline. And it somewhat sets the stage for monetary sovereignty, protection against inflation is part of the cultural heritage of, um, of crypto assets. Uh, I don't take that lightly. A lot of people really assign anarchy to crypto assets or liberalism, voluntarism, whatever. I, I don't really think that uh, Bitcoin cares about uh, about your personal political opinion. It's just there. But that it's somewhat hard and not friendly with inflation. I think that's a statement that, that is warranted. That, that That's something that you can read from um, from the monetary supply that was decided in the beginning um, from this Genesis block uh, and also from other things. So that's actually a good time to talk about inflation and what inflation does to society, how it feels. Okay, great. Thanks, Levy. Uh, thanks so much. I want to mainly give some kind of overview about what, are, what were the steps that led to hyperinflation, specifically in Venezuela. I also mentioned a bit about Argentina because it seems like it's uh, following a similar path, but it's it's mostly it's mostly focused on Venezuela though. So why why it happened at least in Venezuela? So inflation or happy inflation happened actually in a very slow process where people started to distrust local currency and they started to uh, go for harder currencies like the dollar, for example. It was also because of quite a huge increase in the money supply. In, in Venezuela, in Venezuelan bolivars, which is the currency. And in my opinion, also because of quite some generalized corruption that was happening. So I think all the story uh, about the inflation in Venezuela started because of the currency controls. Uh, Venezuela has had currency controls since 2003. Currency controls mean basically that Venezuelans have absolutely no access to foreign currencies in a free way which means that you, in order to get a foreign currency, you will need to go to a government agency and actually buy or sell dollars there. That led to a black market started as soon as the currency control started uh, because there is actually a bottleneck in the supply of dollars available for the population. It means that there is actually few access to legal dollars, for example, or subsidized dollars in this case. And at the same time, there is also access to uh, what is called the black market dollar, which is basically an underground market, which has usually quite a much bigger rate than the dollar, than the, than the legal dollar. So those are the two ways to access the say foreign currency. And at the same time, there's also other ways that were implemented. For example, government bonds, they were offered to be bought in, in Venezuelan bolivars and they pay dividends in dollars, for example. A lot of those eventually defaulted as well. So it was basically not a very good hedge against inflation also. How does the black market work? In Venezuela, it works peer-to-peer -peer mostly, which means that everybody has a contact 
or a WhatsApp number or a known person that actually has access to the outside financial system. And maybe you as a, as a Venezuelan also have some access to, you know, an American bank, for example, that you opened when you traveled to the US, etc. And a lot of those exchanges are done like that, like just matching people via WhatsApp, basically. And also in, in the borders, like in the borders with Colombia, for example, uh, because in Colombia, there's not so there's no currency control or not very strict currency control. People go there to basically exchange Venezuelan bolivars for dollars. And uh, basically those are the main ways in Venezuela. In Argentina, uh, in this time, they also, they also have quite a strict currency control. It started actually, uh, Argentina has a history of many currency controls since, uh, since some time, but, but it was actually relaxed for some years until months ago and now it's actually becoming very strict again and Argentina has developed quite some physical infrastructure actually to to access dollars and those are called cuevas which means that there is like clandestine uh, physical places in you know the cities that allow people to just go there and buy dollars and sell dollars and uh, they actually do quite 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 some uh, logistic work for you. Like you can, for example, you can tell uh, the Cuevas to send money to a friend and they will actually send it through, you know, post and this kind of things. They actually provide a very, very interesting service. So because of the dollar scarcity that it's uh, produced because of the currency controls, there was actually, there were developed many websites where you could see the current price in the black market of the dollar. Uh, the Venezuelan, which is called Dollar Today, and it actually calculates the the dollar according multiple factors in the in the black markets. Uh, some of them are calculated through how the exchanges are done in the borders. Some of some of them are used. They use some indexes. I'm not exactly sure how that works. And also in the Venezuelan side, for example, you could see that also the dollar Bitcoin is actually one of those. That, are, that is used as a reference. We will talk about the dollar Bitcoin in a bit. And in the case of Argentina, you have this bluedollar.net website, which allows you all to, also to see what, what more or less is the reference price of the black market. In the case of Venezuela, the currency controls led to quite some systematic corruption throughout time. After many years, because as, uh, as I mentioned before, it started in 2003. It started because of uncertainty that happened and political issues that happened in the country. But it stayed for a longer time. It was supposed to be temporary measure, but it stayed as every government temporary measure. It's always uh, permanent. In the beginning, it worked quite well, but in the end, it started to be completely corrupted. No? For example, very few players which were basically friends of governments or persons that have more contact, close contact to the government, uh, had access to subsidized dollars, which meant that they could actually import quite some goods and, uh, and services in a very cheap way and offer it to the market. And other players actually didn't, that didn't have access to foreign currencies, they were basically kicked out of the market because it's impossible to compete as a company that has access to the dollar, uh, to the black market dollar, with a company that actually has subsidized dollars because the subsidized dollars will basically give, give you cheaper products in the end, right? 
So everybody would just buy the products that are imported by the subsidized dollars. This created quite, quite, a, quite a strong, I think, discrepancy in prices across, across Venezuela because some of the products were heavily subsidized and some of them were not. So basic food, for example, was heavily subsidized which led to scarcity at the same time, because basically very few players had access to the dollar to import this kind of goods. And also production and exports were basically completely destroyed you know, uh, because of the same reason. Like it was so cheap to import goods at the time that basically pro producing money was not worth it, right? So everybody was importing. It, it was unbelievable. We reached a point where literally all the companies that are making money were just importing companies. At the same time, I call it systematic corruption because it became completely general. For example, for tourism, people were allowed to have, you know, to use maybe one or two thousand dollars per year to spend abroad using credit cards. And because of this, the flights, the flight tickets that Venezuelans were buying were actually bought using subsidized dollar which means that flight tickets were actually very cheap. They were so cheap that a lot of people started to travel. And then with the access to those subsidized dollars to spend in credit cards, then people were just buying basically goods abroad and bringing them back and reselling them in Venezuela and making a huge profit out of it. And this happened in a generalized way. A lot of people did it. It was actually kind of bad scene not to do it because in a way you deserve these dollars, no? Like this is your portion of the dollars, the, 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 the little quota that the government uh, allows to you. So it became so strong, so strong that everybody used this and uh, eventually the government had to reduce the tourism dollars to zero, which means that nobody could legally fly abroad and spend money abroad. Of course, this didn't work in the end because people had access to the, to the black market dollar. Another example of corruption was actually getting loans for, for example, mortgages in New York that were obtained in dollars to, to pay for the mortgage in New York and actually were payable in, in Venezuela and Bolivar, which meant that basically the, if the Venezuela and Bolivar actually would inflate, you would basically have a house for free in New York. And this was actually done in a big scale as well. Obviously, all these issues, the amount of dollar scarcity led to huge deficits in the government side and inflation became a growing issue. No? Also, political uncertainty and economical uncertainty obviously uh, led to the same and uh, massive money printing for example, in 2014, the base monetary supply was increasing 64% only. And uh, like it happens gradually and then suddenly, inflation happens like this. Venezuela has mostly had, you know, quite some high inflation uh, between 15 and 40%. But uh, reaching to the years 2013, 2014, because of the terrible economic situation that Venezuela had, the huge scarcity of US dollars that were, that was uh, not available in the markets. And at the same time with the oil prices uh, dropping dramatically in the years 2014, 2015, uh, led to basically hyperinflation. 
something to remember is that 95% of the GDP of Venezuela is actually oil exports. So uh, a small change in the dollar in the oil price makes a huge issue in deficits in deficits for Venezuela basically. Around the year 2014-2015, hyperinflation started and it actually reached very high numbers around the number 1,300,000%. I think it actually reached a bit more. This is, this is some estimates, but I think it reached 1,800,000, if I remember correctly, which means that basically your money just, you know, goes away uh, every day in a way. This hyperinflation resulted in uh, obviously a huge decrease in the wages of Venezuelans. The minimum wage uh, reached a point where it was $2 per month, which as you, as you, yeah, you must find it absolutely ridiculous, but that was actually complete true. Uh, uh, I have family that is professional, for example, and they work in Venezuela and they are earning 20 to $30 per month. And uh, that led to uh, some kind of uh, like vicious circle where, for example, you know, stopping work, stop working was actually more beneficial <laughs> than actually working. You know? uh, in this example, we can see RuneScape. It's actually a multiplayer game uh, that you can play online uh, and it's 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 uh, it's some kind of strategy game where you have like little uh, villagers and you basically mine for gold virtual gold uh, but actually this virtual gold that you mine has actually quite some monetary value which meant that actually if you play in runescape for you know a whole month you will probably earn more than you know two dollars per month and that is already enough for you as an individual to have the incentive to stop working completely in Venezuela and just playing runescape for life. That is the lowest point of Venezuela's economy reached, which is quite, quite surprising. After some time, dollarization became quite inevitable because people obviously, they seek for harder currency after the Venezuelan Bolivar was hyperinflating. It was actually bottom up, bottoms up dollarization, which means that people just started to select dollars as you know, their store of value and their, even their, uh, their ways of exchanging money in the streets of Venezuela. Uh, some estimates say that around 50% of the economy is already dollarized. And you can see US dollars permanently in, in the streets of Venezuela. Like if you go to buy a burger or whatever, if, if you buy a pizza in Venezuela, uh, in Domino's Pizza, for example, the person that is actually getting your uh, order asks you to send a picture through WhatsApp of the dollars, of the dollar bills that you're gonna use to pay before they actually send the pizza. <laughs> As a means to, to, I don't know, to secure themselves uh, that you pay with Venezuelan bolivars or with fake currency, I guess. And after some time also, around one year ago, to remove some of the pressure for the hyperinflation and the dollar scarcity, 
the Venezuelan government decided to allow, again, U.S. dollars to be traded peer-to-peer. So before it was illegal, any kind of transaction from Venezuelan dollar to, to Bolivars that was not part of the official institutions, now it's legal again. Uh, but as far as I know, there's no institution that actually allows you to do these transformations of dollars to Venezuelan Bolivars. And we could see, for example, similar cases that happened in Ecuador and Zimbabwe. It was, uh, for example, in Ecuador, it was actually pretty similar. It was a bottom-up approach where people just started to select basically dollars instead of uh, their currency, which was the Sucre. A small image there, you can see the amount of Venezuelan Bolivars that represent one dollar, and that image was probably done many years ago. Hey, Alessandro, I have a question. So, (laughs) how much... Is a pizza in US dollars in Venezuela one dollar? No, it's actually I mean, surprisingly expensive. The country became very expensive because of this. So it's around fourteen dollars, as far as I understand. Which how can is, someone buy a pizza then? Well, that's the thing. No, there's 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 two economies in Venezuela right now. So there is the economy that actually earns dollars, and there is the economy that earns bolivars. Basically, so if you are in a corporation and you work as a professional there, you usually demand to be paid in dollars or because they have access to dollars, right? But if you're a worker, for example, and you work in the buses, you're a bus driver in Venezuela, you won't have access to dollars at all. So you basically cannot eat pizza. That's how it works. And uh, then quite some part of the, of the food is actually heavily subsidized by Venezuela, by the government. So actually, there is food that is actually cheap, uh, but it's obviously just just a part of it, right? So eating pizza became a luxury, basically. Right. Domino's Pizza is not allowed to quote the pizza in US dollars, but in Bolivar. Mm-hmm. And then they ask you to convert it to whatever exchange rates, and you have to pay it in US dollars, and the Domino shop restaurants then puts dollars into the, the cashier or um, does he exchange it again? Because uh, you said nobody's allowed to sell, to, to count against uh, US dollars. Well, until last year, uh, it was th- that the case. Now, now it's, 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 you can't transact in US dollars. Now it's actually legal to do it. So now you literally buy the pizzas in Domino's Pizza in US dollars. How they do in their cash, in their cash flows, I'm, I'm not sure. I would assume that they do transform their dollars to bolivars for their records, because there is, there is quite some infrastructure to do that. Okay, thank you. So hyperinflation also led to a surge in Bitcoin usage in Venezuela. There is a growing volume of uh, Bitcoin transactions in this platform that is called localbitcoins.com, which is basically an, uh, an OTC uh, peer-to-peer trading platform, which is heavily used in, in many countries around the world. Because in Venezuela, it's actually, for some reason, it's not allowed or there's no exchanges that are actually working with Bitcoin in Venezuela. Most likely they are legally allowed, but the government doesn't like it and the government just shuts it down, etc. So this has been one of the escape valves that Venezuelan have used, for example, to access foreign currency. The volume actually started to drop uh, in the middle of 2019, which, is, which corresponds more or less to the 
flexibilization of the currency control. Interestingly, in Argentina, something similar seems to be happening. Argentinian volume has been quite stable up to the end of 2019, where actually Argentina imposed currency controls again, and the volume seems to be picking up. This volume is, is, the, is the Argentine peso uh, in dollars equivalent, so we could, we could uh, trust that the actually dollar volume has been increasing. So is actually Bitcoin used in Venezuela? Well, it's not used for payments or for savings. So uh, there is quite some speculation that actually talks about it, like Venezuelans do not use Bitcoin, but they use it as a vehicle currency to reach the dollar or more stable currencies, usually it's the dollar. And it's also heavily used for remittances uh, because there is basically no way to send money from abroad to Venezuela. Then uh, what, what people use is just go to this platform, localbitcoins.com, that actually has quite some liquidity. I forgot to mention that they, they process $1 million per day in liquidity, more or less, of, in volume, which is actually, it doesn't sound like much, but for a peer-to-peer -peer trading platform, I think it's actually quite big. And for a, an economy like Venezuela, it's actually, it's actually quite, quite representative. So to send remittances people, what they do is just that they buy, for example, Bitcoin in Colombian pesos uh, from Colombia, and they sell it in Venezuelan bolivars to a bank account, a family member, for example. And there's plenty of platforms that allow you to do this. For example, localbitcoins.com, HODL, HODL, Paxos, local cryptos, etc. Local Bitcoins is actually the one with the most volume by far. So that's why it's the, it's the preferred one to use. Also, people use it as a, uh, for USD savings, basically. For example, it's very easy like, to be in Venezuela, go to localbitcoins.com, then you can just uh, buy Bitcoins with Venezuela. You can transfer it to, let's say, Kraken and transform it there into dollars. And then you can have some kind of stable currency you know, there. People are trusting you know, these exchanges to hold their money. Uh, the same way they trust, for example, a bank abroad to hold their money as well. It definitely provides much more trust than, uh, than Venezuelan currency in the end. And obviously, as, a, as uh, Bitcoin is also used uh, as a means to access the ever-decreasing dollars uh, because, uh, because of all the economical issues that I mentioned before in Venezuela and the complete destruction of the productive uh, industries including the oil industry, which has been producing every time less, uh, there's ever decreasing dollars available. And uh, you know, Bitcoin is it's, it's just one, one of the options that is available to access dollars. It's actually a, a very small one if you put it in proportion to other, other means, like for example, just having a contact, et cetera, et cetera. But if the dollar demand keeps increasing, Obviously, in Bitcoin, the volume will also be, will be increasing as well. Yeah, and in conclusion, basically, Bitcoin provides liquidity in weak currency nations. It's actually growing across all these nations in terms of volume. Uh, the liquidity that is available there allows Bitcoin in general to, to be used as a vehicle currency to the dollar or more stable currencies and uh, access to, for example, dollars in exchanges, uh, in the banking system of dollars, and also access to stable coins. No? We have also seen how stable coins have 
been growing in, in usage in, in the last years, no? especially in the last year. And actually, it's interesting to notice that from March, from the from the when the dollar squeeze actually started, uh, also stablecoins have been growing quite some in 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 demand apparently. Okay, that's it for me. So if you have any questions, please let me know. Um, thank you very much, Alessandro. Thank you very much to, to the audience. Thank you very much. This episode was brought to you by Crypto Finance. We are happy to receive comments and feedback. Email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch